0: unraveling the true crime mysteries that keep you up at night. Rex Heuerman is a demon that walks among us, a predator that ruined families. The Lisk Long Island serial killer podcast, was shocked when the news broke of Rex Heuerman's arrest. After more than a decade of searching, law enforcement officials had finally pieced together enough evidence to bring formal charges against Rex Heuerman. Initially charged with three murders, Hewerman is now officially charged with all four deaths in the Gilgo Four case. I'm your host, Chris Moss, and The List Podcast will be releasing new episodes with interviews and fresh insight on the case as Rex Hewerman awaits trial in Long Island. While we are relieved by the arrest, the LISC podcast team will be working hard to share new developments and perspectives as we get them. So please keep your eyes and ears out for new episodes, and if you haven't already, please listen to seasons one and two of Lisk, Long Island Serial Killer, wherever you listen to podcasts. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police, when police arrived, arrived they found the time. telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. In a scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. cup of murder if you are anything like me, the idea of criminal profiling helping to solve a case is nothing but incredibly interesting. On January 12, 1984, a man was arrested for two crimes that would ultimately send him to the execution chamber. A man who, had it not been for criminal profiling and a chance meeting in Quantico, could have gotten away without any connections to his other crimes." So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. John Jobert was born on July 2, 1963 in Lawrence, Massachusetts to Joseph and Beverly Jobert, who managed a local family restaurant. John was a very bright child with an IQ of 123 and reading books to himself when he was just three years old. He attended parochial school, served as an altar boy, and was known for being the smart, albeit shy, boy in class. John was also one of the smallest boys in their class and got picked on quite a bit as a result. Despite this, John never once showed any signs that he wanted to retaliate, simply kept his head down and his spirits up. That was until he reached the age of six and fantasized for the first time about killing his babysitter. When asked why and if he had anything against the young girl, he told one of the three psychiatrists he was sent to that she was, quote, just someone to kill. These thoughts quickly progressed into killing the strangers he passed on the streets, and then finally to people he knew and people he cared about. In these fantasies, young John Jobert would either stab or strangle his victims, tying and gagging the ones who struggled within his grasp. Years later, when asking his mother and sister where they thought these feelings came from, his mother explained that, when he was just four years old, he saw her being choked by his father until she passed out. Though John could not remember the incident, Beverly had long held suspicions that this was the root of his issues. His fantasies, which would last the rest of his life, seemed to come to the surface any time John was under any sort of stress. After his fantasies began, life in the Joubert home became a bit more tumultuous, and when John was just eight years old, his parents decided to file for divorce with both he and his younger sister moving to Portland, Maine with their mother. This move, however, did very little to calm the tensions in the Joubert home. According to the psychiatric reports prepared around this time in his life, John's parents continued to argue about where he would live with John biking to Lawrence to visit his father several times because his mother would not give him travel money. A mother who, according to Dr. David Kent Smith, belittled her son, spanked him until he was 12 years old, ridiculed his father in front of him, and never approved of any of his friends. Friends that, according to the doctor, were hard for John to find. It seems that childhood bullying continued into John's teens, with reports of kids calling him names, and picking on him for his small stature and funny last name. John wanted more for himself, so starting at the age of 12 until he was 17 years old, John delivered newspapers in his neighborhood and saved up all of his money to pay his way to an all-boys Catholic secondary school, a school where, once again, he excelled academically. He was in the scouts, ran track, and played in the brass ensemble briefly, but any and all downtime was spent alone listening to music in his room. He never once dated and had very little in the way of friendships. He was a lonely boy, a boy who was taunted and ridiculed from all sides, and a boy who was building up that anger to a point where he could no longer contain it. On December 12, 1979, six-year-old Sarah Canty was just outside her home when she dropped a football and bent down to pick it up. When she did, a young man riding a green 10-speed bicycle rode up behind her and stabbed her in the back with either a pencil or a screwdriver, riding off before anyone could say or do anything to stop him. Years later, John would admit to feeling sexually stimulated hearing her cry in the distance. Six weeks later, on January 24th, 1980, 27-year-old Vicki Goff was walking down Deering Avenue in the early evening when she noticed a young man walking past her. Being polite, she said hi to the stranger, and just moments later, she felt the force of a hand wrap around her head and clasp down on her mouth. She then felt the force of what she assumed was a punch to her side and fell down to the ground. Regaining her composure, Vicki stood up and yelled at her attacker, Why'd you do that? To which he answered by running off into the night. When she looked at the spot where she was hit, she noticed blood was seeping through her shirt. She had been stabbed and had her kidney punctured and spent a week in the hospital recovering from her surgery. Two months later, on March 24th, a third grade student named Michael Whitham was walking on that same road when a man on a bike rode up next to him and asked him to come closer. After asking a few questions, Michael looked away for a second and was met with the searing pain from an exacto knife being dragged across his throat. The nine-year-old boy ran off bleeding and, after 12 stitches, was able to survive his attack. It appeared that John Jobert, a young man no one had any clue was committing these violent acts, was escalating. However, what they did know was that the once peaceful neighborhood, the one where John used to deliver the newspaper, was no longer a safe utopia. Parents started to accompany their children everywhere they went. School officials told them not to walk the streets alone, and one parent group considered collecting money for a reward so they could capture the young man responsible for stabbing Michael Whitham. But just as quickly as they started, the attacks ceased and everything went back to normal. John Jobert graduated high school in 1981, and the following fall attended Norwich University, a small military college in Norfield, Vermont. Now on his own, John's academics seemed to slip, but were replaced by an ability for the first time ever to make friends and spend time with his peers. This did, however, lead to the experimentation with both alcohol and drugs, but he told his psychiatrist that he did not like the way that either made him feel. After enjoying a year's worth of newfound freedom from his family, John failed to find a job the following summer and instead joined the Air Force the following August. Despite the fact that his life seemed to be finally improving, John felt powerless against his long-held fantasies. On September 18, 1983, 13-year-old Danny Joe Eberly was delivering newspapers in Bellevue, Nebraska with his brothers when he suddenly disappeared. When they checked the last house he delivered to, Danny's bike was found along with the rest of his undelivered papers. There was no sign of a struggle, but his brother, who did not see Danny being taken, did say that a white man in a tan car had been following them for the last few days. According to a later confession, John claimed he approached the young boy, drew a knife, covered his mouth, and instructed him to follow him back to his truck. After a three-day-long search, Danny's body was found in a patch of high grass along a gravel road about four miles from where his bicycle was found. He was wearing nothing but his underwear, his feet and hands bound, his mouth taped shut with surgical tape, and his body riddled with signs of torture. His cause of death was the nine stab wounds he suffered from. Because he was kidnapped before he was murdered, Danny's case fell under the jurisdiction of the federal government, and the FBI was brought in to work the case. As they worked to investigate the case, focusing on the known sex offenders and pedophiles in the area, all of whom had to be cleared for one reason or another, another boy, 12-year-old Christopher Walden, disappeared just about three miles from where police found Danny's body. On December 2nd, 1983, Christopher Walden was abducted from Papillion, Nebraska, and like in Danny's case, witnesses saw a white man driving a tan car prior to his disappearance. According to John, he drove up beside Christopher, showed him the sheath of his knife, and ordered him to get in the car. After driving to some railways outside of town, John ordered the young boy to strip down to his underwear, which he did, but refused to lie on the ground as John was demanding. After a brief struggle, John overpowered the young boy and stabbed him, cutting his throat so deeply that he was almost decapitated. His body was found two days later and five miles from the town. On January 11, 1984, a preschool teacher working in the area of the murders called the police and said that she saw a young man driving suspiciously near the school, and when the driver saw her writing down his license plate number, stopped, threatened her, and then sped off. Though this car was not the tan car that seemed to be at both abductions, the plate number was run and traced back to John Jobert who had rented this car and was an enlisted radar technician from the Offutt Air Force Base. Wondering why he may have been renting a car, they looked into what was registered to him and found that he owned a tan Chevrolet Nova sedan that was at the time being repaired. Realizing that this could be a viable suspect, police got a search warrant and, upon entering John's home, found a rope consistent with that used to bind Danny Eberly. An uncommon rope made by the U.S. military in South Korea. When questioned, John said he got the rope from a scoutmaster of the troop where he was working as an assistant. When pressed further, John Jobert confessed to both of the murders and warned the police that, if they did not arrest him, he would absolutely kill again. He was officially arrested on January 12, 1984. John was charged with two counts of murder and held in lieu of a $10 million bond. After his arrest, several psychiatric evaluations were performed on John Jobert. One classified him as suffering from obsessive-compulsive disorder, sadistic tendencies, and having schizoid personality disorder. And though he vehemently denied it, some said that he was a latent homosexual, with John saying he had never had sex. John would later say that he believed the ages of his victims directly correlated with what he considered the worst ages of his life, targeting boys between the ages of 11 and 13 as a means for targeting himself. John pled guilty to both counts of murder and on July 3rd was sentenced to death. Now, prior to his arrest, famed FBI profiler Robert K. Ressler created a profile based on the murder of both Danny and Christopher, a profile that matched John Jobert down to the letter. When presenting the case of the two Nebraska boys to a training class in Quantico, a police officer from Portland, Maine, just so happened to be in the audience and noted the similarities to a case in his jurisdiction. On August 22, 1982, just before John entered the military, an 11-year-old boy named Richard Ricky Stetson was jogging on Back Cove Trail and, when he failed to return home after dark, his worried parents called 911. The next day, a motorist found the boy's body on the side of the road, half undressed, stabbed, strangled, and left with a lasting and vicious bite mark. Something left behind on the bodies of both Danny and Christopher. A man was arrested for Ricky's murder, but when they found that the bite mark did not match his dental records, the man was released after a year and a half in custody, leaving Ricky's case unsolved ever since. At the time of his disappearance, witnesses claimed he was accompanied by a young man riding a 10-speed bicycle. Sound familiar? Well, a few people seem to think so as well once John's crimes started to make their way into the media, so much so that he was bumped to the top of the suspect list in Ricky Stetson's murder. Sure, this had to be their guy. Hair samples and tooth impressions were obtained from John in February of 1985, and when it all came up as a match, he was indicted for Ricky's murder on January 10th, 1986, it seemed that his enlistment in the military may have simply been a method for leaving town after his first murder. With this new piece of information, police started to look into other cases to see if John could be connected. That's when, much to everyone's horror, he was connected to the stabbing of Sarah Canty, Vicki Goff, and Michael Witham. He was later sentenced to an additional life sentence in Maine for Ricky's murder. In 1995, John filed a writ of habeas corpus over his death sentences, lawyers arguing that the aggravated factor of the, quote, exceptional depravity was unconstitutionally vague, but his sadistic torture of both Danny and Christopher caused an overturn of the appeal. He was executed on July 17, 1996, at the age of just 33 years old. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to What Terrible Thing Happened on January 13th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.